0: to the kick sugar coach podcast join me each week as i interview experts who will share the science of sugar sugar addiction and different approaches to recovery we hope to empower you with the information and inspiration insights and strategies you need to break up with sugar and fall in love with healthy whole foods so you can prevent and reverse chronic disease lose weight boost your mood and energy feel free to go to my website for details on my coaching programs And to access free resources, kicksugarcoach.com. Welcome, everybody. Today I have with me Dr. Charles Smith, who's literally in his doctor's office right now, taking out time to connect with us today, (laughs) losing his uh, camera. He is a doctor of osteopathy. Um, He was in family medical practice for 26 years in West Virginia and has more recently been working specifically in the area of addiction. He considers himself an addictionologist. I didn't know that was a thing, but those are medical doctors, I think, that work specifically in the realm of of addiction and addiction recovery. And what's equally important is that Dr. Smith has walked his own journey of recovery from addiction. He knows firsthand what it's like to be caught up in substance abuse, and he also knows the science and the medical understanding of what's going on in the brain um, and the biological aspects of addiction. So welcome, Dr. Smith.
1: Thank you. I'm glad to be here.
0: So let's start with your story. So um, when did your story of addiction rec- start? Like what are some of your earliest memories of feeling of noticing, oh, I was already actively in addiction?
1: Well, certainly, even as a teenager, uh, when in underage drinking was involved, Uh, At 14, 15, 16, when uh, a group of teenage kids would just be out experimenting, I I did even notice at that time, I liked it a little too much. I drank more than the other kids. I I tend to have more consequences of my drinking than the other kids did. Then once college came around, that fit me perfectly. Then it was binge drinking three, four, five, six days a week. As I mentioned to you earlier, then once medical school started, I actually became somewhat depressed because I found out very quickly I wasn't going to be able to do the academics and continue my drinking at that level. So I was able to curtail it, but I was sad about that. So once I finished medical school and began to practice, my alcohol use drastically increased, and that's when I discovered my My other big addiction, which was opiate pain pills, I would come in to the office so sick with severe alcohol hangovers, and they had just started sampling Vicodin and LORTAD. This was in the 1980s. So I said, uh, well, I'm going to take a couple of these, see what it does. Well, the next 20 years is basically a blur because it did extreme euphoria and and extreme high, and I mixed them with alcohol. And the next 20 years was just marred by addiction, as many of us know it, just bad decisions in every aspect of life and development of tolerance and escalation of of use until in 2009 when I was working at a, a state clinic in West Virginia, two DEA agents showed up. I'd been writing fraudulent prescriptions for years. And basically, the agent looked at me and said, we just like to know one thing. What is wrong with you? (laughs) And, of course, I told him I was sick, I thought. And uh, he uh, said, well, you'd better be, because if you've been selling those, you're going to prison. And I told him, I don't sell them. He said, well, how is it possible that one person could take 3,000 pills a month? and I told him, I said, I run out sometimes, and it was true. I did run out sometimes, so that was both the worst day of my life and the best day of my life because it saved my life. Following that, I lost my license for seven years, but I went to treatment. I found long-lasting recovery. Uh, I was at a halfway house for five years. Then I was able to get accepted at the University of Florida to do an addiction medicine fellowship, so more training, but it also allowed me to regain a full unrestricted medical license and a DEA certificate. So now I've been practicing in South Florida for three years, fully unrestricted with all the rights and prescribing uh, privileges.
0: Wow. So how old were you when this all came to a head for you?
1: 53
0: wow and you were like functioning you were like a functioning active doctor all that time
1: yes and you know whenever people say that i say but you know what it wasn't easy it, right. it was a hard it was a hard life and a very stressful life yes. uh, just just trying to maintain
0: wow literally you took you took 3 000 pills sometimes in a month yes how do you have a brain that's still, you've got some great genetics, I think. <laughs> I would be brain dead, I'm sure of it.
1: And Well, you, actually, oh, go ahead. No, you go ahead. Well, actually, you said I have some great genetics. That's one of the things that we talk about in my book is the genetic predisposition that sets many of us up for addictions to many substances. And, and my family history was no different from grandfather, father. Uh, uh, maternal uncles all had the disease of addiction. So a good portion of this had to do with my genetics. Yes.
0: Right, right. That reminds me, I forgot to mention that you guys need to go out and get the copy of this book. It's called Understanding Addiction. Know the Science, K-N-O-W, the Science or sorry, No Science, No Stigma. And the first two chapters of his book are about his story of recovery, his, his you know, the affliction of addiction and, you know, his journey of recovery. And the last chapters are about the science, that what, what we're coming to understand about addiction. So be sure to go out and get your copy. Apparently it's doing really well on Amazon right now, right? Or is it,
1: where is it? Yes, it is. It's available on Amazon. Uh, it's also available through Walden Books. And uh, you just... You know, Google the name is understanding addiction, no science, no stigma, a little play on words, and uh, it's available there.
0: Awesome. So let's go into your story a bit more because um, I think there's probably so so much insight that you learned firsthand about what it takes to hit bottom and to decide to you know leave the pain of addiction and walk the path of recovery. So what I understand that those agents kind of activated you know, kick-started you needing to turn things around. But where did it go from there?
1: Well, you know, there it was really a choice. Uh, I didn't really have a choice. Of that I lost my license. I had already lost my driver's license to a previous DUI, so I had no source of income. And I really expected there would be some, some sort of prosecution for these fraudulent prescriptions that I had written. So I went on to treatment. Uh, and there, when I got to treatment, you know and told my story to to the treatment facility, you know they said well but but you have a disease." And I went, uh, you know, come on guys i I drank too much, and I got hooked on pills. I mean, you know, that could happen to anybody. I had a sample cabinet full of them. Well, it turns out that doesn't happen to anyone. In fact, most of the physicians across across the world have access to these medicines that doesn't happen to them. So, so I got to um, and, and they told me that, that I was sick and I, I was like, this, you know I've been a family doctor for 26 years. I think I would recognize the disease when I see it. I said, this was just bad behavior. So I started the treatment. My mind did start to heal. I became open-minded and started researching the science myself. A lot of Dr. Nora Bolkow's work, she's the uh, medical director of National Institute of Drug Abuse, and I started learning high tolerance of substance, ease of access to substance, and I was basically a disaster waiting to happen. All I had to do was add the, add the chemicals. So as I, as I did this, then, you know, I had a burning desire to want to treat addiction. So my first path was to become certified as an addiction counselor. Then that led me to meet the, the very gracious people at the University of Florida that allowed me to enter their training program and do a two-year addiction medicine fellowship. Uh, now, I spend most of my time taking care of patients, both detox, as I said, residential and outpatient, but specifically, I want to educate my patients and anyone else who's interested in this this is a disease, it's no different than diabetes, no different than hypertension, no different than any of the other chronic medical illnesses we have, except for the one caveat, it actually responds excellent to patient compliance with good treatment. When I get a, a compliant patient, the patient gets better, just as I was an example of myself. You do the things that we ask you to do, you will get better.
0: Mm, that's, so much, that's so hopeful. So just before we got online, you were saying, you know, sugar addiction, Florence, and any other addiction, they're the same pathways. We know it scientifically now. It's that, you know, addiction is addiction is addiction. Tell me a bit more about that.
1: Well, it all has to do with the reward system of the brain, and sugar particularly and the whole group of process addictions become much more difficult because the difficulty maintain abstinence. And I'm sure you know we're going to recommend that anyone with sugar addiction avoid simple carbohydrates, but that they consume complex carbohydrates. Now, for process addictions such as shopping, internet, porn, even sex, Become much more difficult. Many of those you can abstain from, but some you actually can But there aren't many addictions that we're going to advocate for monitor for moderation of use. Most we're going to the the essence of treatment is two prong: once abstinence, or as we said, at least complex carbohydrates, and the rest coping skills through many aspects, either through peer-supported mutual aid with either 12-step mutual aid or rational recovery, smart recovery, cognitive behavioral therapy with a licensed mental health counselor or or a licensed social worker, as well as good psychiatric care if there's any dual diagnosis of anxiety, depression, bipolar disorder. So it's a whole gambit there along with abstinence and the rest develops our coping skills.
0: What is, uh, if most people who, just like you and your story, we don't want to hear that we need to be abstinent. We want to hear that we can heal this and we can go back and become normal eaters or be be moderate with cake or have the odd cookie or have birthday cake or something like that, Right. So what would you say to somebody who's still holding out the hope if they fall on the addiction spectrum, that they can recover and go back to being more moderate or normal with their consumption of refined
1: carbohydrates? Then they don't have the level of disease that rises to, say, alcohol use disorder severe, and we have a full screening process to diagnose those people. If you just had one or two episodes Of problem drinking, that is not enough to make the diagnosis. So it's very important that you go through a screening procedure. Are you familiar with the CAGE screening, C-A-G-E acronym? Have you tried to cut back and you couldn't? Do you become angry or annoyed when someone brings up your use? Do you ever feel guilty over your use? Or do you ever need an eye opener or use or partake of something before an event or early in the morning? If you answer yes to any of those questions, that should prompt a professional evaluation. At that professional evaluation, they'll determine what level you're at. and at that point you're you know, I'm asking these people to follow the medical professional's advice. If they tell you that moderation could work for you, that you're a very low level, By all means, I have no reason to object. But for the vast majority, that's not the case. The vast majority need to practice abstinence. And with time and healing of the reward system of the brain, our salience, what's important to us, changes, as well as our prefrontal cortex heals and our ability to make good decisions improves.
0: Mm. How do we heal the brain then? Okay, let's say someone says, all right, maybe I need to do abstinence. Okay, that's greets terror and grief in me but let's say i'm willing to do abstinence how long would it does it take to heal the brain and what does it take to heal the brain
1: it takes for for most alcohol drugs and other substances up to two years for the reward system to heal including the prefrontal cortex Uh, so what has to happen as we said abstinence from the substance but Equally as important is the development of these coping skills that I start practicing healthy behaviors. I replace my previous unhealthy behaviors with healthy behaviors. We can't leave a void there. It simply simply won't work. But when we replace them with healthy behaviors... It, you know, it's not It's not like it's zero to two years and it all happens. This is almost, I put in a book, almost like watching the sunrise. Okay, you know, at 6 a.m., it's dusk maybe eight, nine. You can see it. You can see some light. You even see a little sunshine noon. It's pretty bright and shining. You know, that's how the one to two years develop, almost like watching the sunrise. Mm. And then when you're at that, when you're at that full sunrise, then you are, I always use that little phrase, the best you can be. At that point, you know, you really are, as we say in the meetings, happy, joyous, and free.
0: Right. And one of the things I heard about healing the brain, and I've heard it before that it takes roughly two years for us to, to heal the brain and to get back to equilibrium, in terms of our, our baseline neurotransmitters, to feel good, to feel resilient, to have our neocortex, be back online, all those good things, but it, that it doesn't actually happen if we don't abstain from all the things that light up our, our, our addictive pathways. So caffeine, sugar, so if let's say you're, you are a drinker, and most of my audi- audience are sugar addicts, but some of them have co-addictions, like they actually have issues with wine and alcohol as well. But um, I understand that to truly heal the brain, you actually have to abstain from all addictive substances. Is that your opinion as well?
1: Yes, and, and I have that in chapter three of my book, that all natural occurring substances and healthy behaviors that give our brain reward don't go over 200 in the the, uh, limbic system of the brain. All these other substances that go over 200 or in in genetic predisposition individuals that, that have the D subtype 2 receptors that can accept these other rewards when this system becomes dysregulated, it opens us up to restless, irritable discontent, to frequent episodes of withdrawal and subsequent depression. So most people just continue to use in an attempt to feel normal. So what all of the addiction medicine, world recommends this abstinence from anything that's going to dysregulate the dopamine reward system. We particularly harp on smokers and nicotine over this because it definitely elevates the reward at 225. So it doesn't mean that, all the, that someone continues nicotine is absolutely doomed to never recover from their drug of choice, but it makes it more difficult.
0: Yes, I've heard that. Now, what do you mean by 200 and 225? Is that some sort of measurement that we can do in blood work or what is that?
1: Actually, this is milligram percent concentration of the reward chemical released in the midbrain. And this this can be measured with modern day radiology techniques such as PET scans and functional MRI scans, which measure not only anatomy, but metabolism of the brain.
0: Oh my goodness that is so interesting. So basically what you're saying is that if someone's wondering if maybe coffee lights up their limbic system, their limbic brain and goes over the 200, uh, 200 what is it milligrams did you say?
1: Uh, it's It's percent concentration
0: what he said, over the 200% concentration. And so we can deny to ourselves, right? We can lie to ourselves about, oh no, it's not really a problem. But if we did a PET scan and we could show that it was above 200, it's suggesting that biochemically in the brain, it is in fact acting like a drug.
1: Exactly. And then there's certainly the poor man's litmus test for this that I describe to patients all the time. I see a patient at a restaurant. They have one margarita and I go up to them and I say, you know what? It's our our, uh, restaurant anniversary. We're going to give you six more margaritas on the house. Well, interestingly, nine out of 10 people will decline that. And their answer simply is, I don't like the way six or seven make me feel. Where the one in 10 who has this vulnerability, the dopamine reward system is going to say, of course, bring them on. I love the, the euphoria and I, can, I have the ability to accept these high dopamine releases. So, of course, I want more. So you can do excellent screening very, very cheaply. But also there, there is this advanced radiologic technique that, that can identify vulnerable people also.
0: It's very interesting, and I mean, I've the the, perver- the the stereotypical AA room. Here's my vision of it: we have these alcoholics who are white knuckling their way by the grace of God, one day at a time. You know, they're fighting for sobriety one day at a time, and they're going and they're getting three pots of coffee while they're in the meeting, and they're they're binge eating cookies, if not sugar cubes, <laughs> right? And so the relapse rate is really rampant often, you know, on again, off again, on again, off again. And you have to wonder with the new science about how, if any of these substances are lighting up those addictive pathways, it's so much harder to get sober, clean and sober from any of them, like from the caffeine, the sugar, the nicotine, the alcohol, the any other kind of drugs that are being thrown into the mix.
1: Yeah. Quite often I I dispel this, uh, Old wives tell when patients come in and they're smoking and, they, and they're coming in either for heroin, alcohol, cocaine, no matter what. And I suggest to them that they do smoking cessation at that time. Many, many buck me on that and say, you know, one, one thing, you know, one thing at a time. And I said, no, it's really not one thing at a time for the best results. And to make this both the safest and most comfortable for you It really all needs to happen right now. Mm,
0: that's amazing. How many people of these clients that you work with would you say are also addicted to sugar?
1: Many, many. And, you know, many would actually find sugar as a replacement once the other substance is gone. So we see weight gain, we, we see development of adult diabetes, we see many, many problems with the simple carbohydrate of sugar in early recovery because that system is still begging for high dopamine releases. Right. And while sugar doesn't go over that magical number of two, it abuts right up against it. And the, the bang for the buck is just not there. The nutritional value, as you well know, is just not there for simple sugars.
0: So you're suggesting to me that on PET scans, sugar does not light up the brain um, as much as some of these other substances of abuse that you're talking about.
1: Yes. And one explanation though why the why the addiction process looks exactly like other substances is it has to do with the D subtype 2 receptors. I often say, you know, what your D subtype 2 receptors would be analogous, say, to a lock and a key. You know, one lock and one key, it looks like every key in the world should open that lock, yet it's one individual one. So each individual's brain, the amount. The dopamine release the timing of the dopamine release and the ability to accept it is different mm-hmm. so for the people who have that vulnerability for sugar for example it's that lock and key works just right where it doesn't for the other 90 percent of the population no different for gambling for internet shopping sex porn Yep.
0: Yep. It lights you up or not. I've seen brain images of a brain on cocaine and a brain on sugar, and they look very similar. And I think it was a PET. Um, So I thought that we could see under PET technology that sugar does act like a, like a, like a dopamine drug, like opiate.
1: Well, you would get higher concentrations, but not over 200. But the amount of receptors that were saturated would be higher, and I, I think that's what you've seen is how much of the receptors were saturated.
0: Mm. Oh, interesting, that very well could be. And I wonder too, if there's ever been PET scans on uh, wheat and dairy, because those are the other two that are really common in in food addiction um, triggers, right that I, I wonder I think my brain lights up even more on wheat than it does on actual sugar.
1: Interesting. Yeah, I'm, I'm, that I'm not familiar with, but certainly the the simple carbohydrates is, is well documented.
0: Right, absolutely. Um w- and one of the things I've also heard from another addictionologist out of Canada, Dr. Tarman, is she was saying that she thinks that sugar is um, you know, in part a gateway drug that is sort of like the original um substance that deregulates the brain. And can potentially set addicts up for harder drugs down the road. What is your thoughts on that?
1: You know, I would I would agree with that. I tended to think of alcohol uh, and nicotine and cannabis as, as the gateway drugs. But then again, that that's my subspecialty to work with that branch of mind-altering substances. But anything that puts this dopamine reward system at a dysregulated state would be a, a, gay rate, a gateway drug because then we're facing episodes of binging, episodes of withdrawal. We become uncomfortable, restless, irritable, discontent, and are looking to uh, feel normal. So yeah, I can certainly see the analogy.
0: Yeah. And for you personally, how long was it before you started to to feel better. Like what was your detox like? And what was your recovery like? And what were the tools that works best for you to keep moving forward?
1: You know, my my detox was a very difficult the first month. Uh, After that, I did start getting some physical exercise. I started at the gym. So I was starting to get endorphin release. I, I could see my spirit starting to rise, my energy level improved, my sleep improved, my structure of my days improved. And, you know, the rest was just a uh, just a glide slope up to about two years. And at about two years, I really think I had reached my peak of where I've stayed at for the last 12.
0: Isn't that incredible? Did you have any relapse in those two years?
1: No, I didn't. Uh, I will say I had very hard cravings the first year, though. Very hard cravings.
0: How did you get through them? What worked for you?
1: uh starting to practice the things i had learned from treatment reaching out for help no longer isolating talking about my problems with other people just becoming more open
0: mhm right yeah what's one thing you never want to forget about what it was like when you were actively in an addiction
1: just the terror that was involved the terror, and and just the we use the term you know monkey on your back, but j- just having to live that double life of knowing that I had this secret that I had to try to hide from the world that if I didn't have my substances I couldn't function, mm. and that that I had deteriorated to the point that I was going to do whatever it took, right to get
0: right. D- did you ever have like a primal fear that this could kill me, like I could
1: die? You know, during the act of addiction, it, it's so mind altering. A lot of us, and I was included, that we don't care if we do die. Right.
0: You
1: know, if you would have told me, you know, you're not going to wake up tomorrow, my answer was, "Oh well."
0: Yes. You know,
1: I I wasn't actively suicidal, but my my desire to live just wasn't there. Totally. You know, it, it was dampened. It was yeah. dampened to death.
0: And then after two years and the sun is at noon, it's high and it's bright and your brain is balanced. And, you know, what is life like now for you as a recovered addict? I should say, I don't know that we ever fully recover, but you know what I'm saying? Your brain is healed and you're moving forward into a sober life. What What's the best parts about your life now?
1: Well, I, I love my work. I, I love my, uh, I'm remarried. My wife is now three years. Uh, I love my family. Uh, things are just great and i i notice certainly now that i am able to enjoy life's little pleasures i'm able to enjoy exercise i'm able to enjoy a beautiful day a beautiful sunset uh you know good times with family and friends and laughter you know all those things are able to register on my reward scale now
0: oh, that's so beautiful what is there any final words of wisdom you'd like to share with individuals who are hooked into sugar and flour? And I appreciate that this isn't totally your area of expertise. Addictions generally is, um, but it is it is unbelievable, it causes incredible pain and suffering, just extraordinary. People are overweight, they're depressed, they're anxious, they've got cancer, they've got diabetes, right? Like they're and they just can't seem to stop eating this junk food, even though they know better. So there's a lot of shame, guilt, and regret and self-loathing. So is there any words of advice you'd give to them who are seeking the freedom and the health and the healing that you've, you've achieved in your own life?
1: Yes, it would be to get professional care. Do not try to do this on your own. And also don't don't necessarily seek advice of lay people who aren't educated in this either because the advice you get may not be good advice. So, you know, if you if you fail that little screening test that I discussed earlier, and I have that in my book too, then immediately start with your primary care physician, then they'll know the appropriate specialist to send you to for management and aftercare, which like you said, cognitive behavioral therapy, peer support groups, all, all of that, Can get you started in the right direction. If you just sit at home, nothing changes. Nothing changes.
0: (laughs) Absolutely. Can we go through the cage again? So I'm gonna I'm gonna reframe it in the context of food and sugar addiction. So the C stands for unsuccessful attempts to cut back. Right. Uh huh. A stands for anger, irritation. No, anger, irritation, or defensiveness around people commenting on your consumption.
1: Yeah, yeah, anger. They say, oh, you're eating ice cream again. Oh, is that another candy bar? And it it makes you angry.
0: (laughs) And the G stands for?
1: You feel guilty over it. Oh, my goodness, I've consumed this much candy, this much sugar cereal. uh, And the guilt becomes overwhelming. And interestingly, the only way to solve that guilt is to redose and use more. So it's that vicious cycle.
0: Right. Or to get abstinent, because I think the guilt is because we know deep in our hearts and in our in our bones and in our soul that we're self harming and that we have to stop. And it's it feels so wrong and bad to violate that inner knowing. So the G is guilt and E for us would be do we wake up in the morning and have to have toast? For me, it was black forest cake. Like if I wasn't adversely affected by sugar, I would have black forest cake for breakfast. I'd have more for lunch and I'd finish my day off with dinner with Black Forest cake. <laughs> because I couldn't, well, I couldn't imagine trying to start my day without, you know, sugar, flour, wheat, chocolate, all, you know, all those dairy, all of that all stuck together in like a, a speedball.
1: Yeah, that's exactly the way I would have termed it, that speedball. So I'm looking for that burst of energy, that burst of euphoria, that that burst of the false happiness that comes with that before I get up, before I do a task, before I have a meeting, before work, maybe no matter what the event is. So the eye opener is not only that you need it in the morning before you're going to do some particular task Mm -hmm. and answering yes to any one of those four questions would prompt the need for a professional review.
0: Mm -hmm. Got it. Thank you so much for your for your time, your expertise, your book. I'm gonna. I have not had a chance to read it yet, but believe me, I will. And I'm so glad to to know you on the other side of your addiction.
1: Well, thank you. Please stay in touch with me.
0: <laughs> Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Bye bye. Bye bye. Thanks for tuning in this week. If you would like more interviews, more information, and more inspiration on how to break up with sugar. Go to my YouTube channel, Kick Sugar Coach, or my website, kicksugarcoach.com.
1: See you next week.